Assalamualaikum. This is Hassan Sayyid, currently serving as Muhtamim Umura Talba, and you're listening to another episode of MKA Chief, a podcast where we interview various professionals in the Jamaat to gain insight into their working lives, how they got to where they are, and what advice they have for aspiring Ahmadi Muslim students. Our guest today is Dr. Nayyar Ahmed Kokar Sahib. Assalamualaikum, Dr. Sahib. Wa alaikum salam rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah for inviting me. Assalamualaikum, Jazakallah, Dr. Sahib. So we won't waste any time. We'll get in right into the questions. So for our first question, it's the same for all of our guests. Tell me about your profession. What is the formal name of your profession? What are your daily tasks? What is a typical work week or day like? And where do you spend most of your working hours? So uh, my my title uh, at this point is is of an assistant professor of biology and microbiology. I'm working with the uh, larger network of University of Pittsburgh. My 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 campus is basically the Greensburg campus. It's a smaller campus than the main campus. Nonetheless, it is still affiliated with the main campus. It's a teaching job, which basically entails that it's 50% teaching with 25% scholarship work, which includes research and uh, any kind of scholarly work that you do, uh, presentation at conferences and whatnot. And the rest of the 25% is service to the campus, you know, so getting involved in various clubs and getting involved in student activities and uh, course scheduling and course structures and all of those types of things um, and you know faculty senate meetings and whatnot so these uh, so that's basically you know in a nutshell what my job entails uh, but of course I'm not specifically teaching microbiology um, at my campus I'm also teaching other assorted biology courses that includes epidemiology foundations of biology immunology nursing microbiology medical microbiology so um, it's, a, it's a culmination of many different courses that come together. A typical day, what it looks like, uh, just depends. Um, I have different schedules for different days in the week, and it changes every semester, uh, you know, depending on how many students have enrolled, whether that course is going to run, it's not going to run. So you have labs, and then you have lectures. Um, lectures are usually anywhere between one hour to about an hour 15, um, as opposed to labs, which can run for about three to four hours. Um, and so the days typically where I have a lab for three to four hours plus a lecture, those are the toughest ones because when you're doing a lab, it requires you to do some prep work. Um, and so the prep work can be itself uh, at least a couple of days that you have to invest, um, you know, along with your teaching assistants. And at this point, um, and I'm actually very grateful, I have two uh, teaching assistants as far as my microbiology course goes. And so they're helping me out, you know, with uh, setting up the lab and preparing all the chemicals and preparing all the, the um, you know, bacteria colonies and, and the cultures uh, that the students have to use in the lab. So that's what I keep telling my students as well as a reminder that, um, you know, there's a lot more than meets the eye as far as, you know, the prep work goes. And the prep work definitely takes a lot longer than the actual class that you know we run which is only three hours long as far as uh, running a lab goes or running lectures goes and that's the same thing with lectures as well uh, with lectures there's a lot of prep work that goes into it you have to prepare the PowerPoint slides you have to think about the content what type of material you want to give out to your students 
and then of course you, you know uh, there's a lot of other things that I do in class to keep students interested like this semester I started playing Jeopardy games with my students and so after each chapter that I complete I actually play a Jeopardy game and so that really helped me connect with my students it helped me um, explain some of the material well because I feel like if it's a more socializing environment it's a more friendly environment it's easier for students to grasp some of the information and that is exactly the feedback that I got I actually after every exam or after every uh, chapter um, I usually take a anonymous feedback from the students and it's been really positive because that's what the students said that the more Jeopardy games that we've played over the semester we feel like we've learned more and so it's it's really um, important to uh, make sure that you have that very cordial environment you have that cordiality of discourse with your students and that's basically what I do now where do I spend most of our my working hours I've already explained that to you to you um, there's different things that we do around the campus um, now the lectures and labs obviously the lab has to be done within a within a laboratory setting you know you have to wear you know your proper protective equipment or PPE um, you know you have your lab coat your lab glasses your gloves uh, making sure that the students don't expose themselves to the bacterial cultures that we're using um, some of those bacteria, yes, they can be, um, you know, disease-causing, they can be infectious, while others um, can be considered um, even edible, uh, if you want to, you know, talk about it in a very, in a very frank way. We, we just call uh, those bacteria edible because um, uh, they don't cause infection in students or they cannot cause infection in, in people. Other than that, um, we have lectures. So lectures, again, that's something which, which changes every semester. I was teaching in different halls in the last semester. This spring semester, you know, obviously it got cut short. Uh, we ended up um, canceling classes after uh, the spring break in March. But uh, nonetheless, the two months that I did teach, we had different lecture halls and um, um, that's basically where I do. The rest of the time, um, I'm spending that mostly in my office. I have an office space where, you know, I have a lot of freedom. I, in fact, um, you know, other than just doing these activities, I also pray in my office. Uh, that's one thing that I uh, enjoy doing a lot. Um, and especially if you have a privacy in your own office, you can, you can do that. You have the freedom to uh, do whatever you like. And then, of course, from time to time, for example, Friday mornings, because my classes start really early, you know, I would just go to my office and listen to Hazu's khutbah in or Hazu's Friday sermon in my office. So those are the type of things that I do other than just, you know, working in my office. And then scholarly work that I do includes, you know, paper writing. Um, I've written a few papers over the last semester with a few students of mine. Uh, I put a few teams together to do that. In fact, right now, I am in the process of uh, writing an editorial. Um, I just got invited about a couple of weeks ago from a, from a journal and they, they reached out to me asking me if I'm interested in writing an editorial on COVID-19. So I agreed and um, I was uh, very graciously provided uh, uh, with funds from the school. And uh, yeah, I'm in the process of actually writing that at this point and I should be able to submit that in a, in a week or two. So that's, uh, you know, all the work that I do. And that's typically how, you know, my week looks like. Again, as far as academic field goes, um, as I've mentioned, you know, the schedule changes every semester. The, you know, your scholarly activities change every semester. You have different students coming in. A very large 
a lion's share of my time is spent with my students. So I'm a very, very strange person in that perspective. I have an open door policy as far as my office goes. Um, and so my students, they just keep, you know, running past my office all the time and they drop by, you know, whenever they want to, whenever they feel like. That's not usually how professors are, uh, but that's how I, I like to keep things as far as my, my connection with my students go. And so uh, a lot of my time is actually shared uh, with my students. They have several questions about the chapter or they might be concerned about an exam, an upcoming exam, or they might have some other issues, personal issues, and they usually come to my office to discuss those things with me. So uh, a lot of my time is also spent doing those those kind of activities. So yeah, uh, with that, I would like to you know conclude my answer. Jazakallah. That sounds like a lot. I know I know. for me being a student, it's like when you, when you see your professors, you only see them in class or, or in lab. You don't really think about all the, the work that goes into putting together everything and I think you you showed that really well that takes so much you know outside of class and just setting up lab class it's not just a three-hour lab it's all the prep work that goes into it and making sure really that the student's safety is the top priority I think that's you know that's really nice and the other thing that you have about your open door policy typically professors will have office hours and then they could come you know those couple hours whatever they be once a week I think that's really nice that you you've had that open door policy and it, it shows with them you know the relationships that you built with your students so that's a really nice thing so if anyone's looking into that like going into this type of field they'd be you know have a good chance to make some nice um, relationships with um, students you know and get to know them as well that is correct I mean the, the important thing is I mean I do I do tell my students that if you want to meet me specifically on a topic or you want to talk about an exam or you have some kind of an urgency send me an email you know that is the best way to reach out to me I always receive my emails on my phone so I'm always in touch with my students I never you know I never delay a response to to an email more than 24 hours. Typically, I would respond to an email within two or three hours or even less. Uh, but it just depends on the, the nature of my day, how busy I am. But again, you know, the, the lab part that I shared with you, it's the same thing with, with lecture as well. You know, we have, I have to prepare worksheets for my students. I have to prepare question banks. I have to prepare, I have to grade those worksheets. And there's, there's a lot of the stuff that goes on in the background. And that's sometimes when I'm sitting with my faculty and my colleagues, this is exactly what we laugh about that what do these people think you know did they think that we're just sitting in our in our offices and doing nothing there's so much that goes on and they, and not just that but there's a lot of requirement from the division chair uh, we have to be involved in so many meetings we have to be involved in you know discussing core structures we have to be involved in discussing textbooks what kind of textbooks are we going to have for the next semester all of those tiny details have to be discussed and ironed out before each semester and even during the semester, we keep touching base on these things with, with the division chair and whatnot. It's a lot of work. It, it really, uh, you know, a typical day sometimes, you know, especially last semester and this semester, somewhere around the exam times, I typically go in the morning around 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock in the wor uh, to, to work. And then uh, this semester was actually even more horrible because I had my lab class at 8 o'clock in the morning. Wow. So I used to wake up at 3.30 a.m., no kidding. Wow. There's absolutely no uh, no pun intended over here. 3.30 a.m. I used to wake up and I used to be at work at 5 o'clock. My TAs used to ar arrive around 5.30, 6 o'clock, and we started preparing for labs. So there's, there's uh, like I said, it's it's um, there's a lot of effort. And, and when I told my students that, they were so surprised. They said, oh, we thought you just, you just came to work like 15 minutes before the lab. And I was like, well, where did you think all the bacteria came from? Did that magically grow in the lab by itself? Of course not. <laughs> 
So it's uh, yeah. So those are the type of things. Zakala, uh, we can we can move on to the next question. If you oh no, that's that's fine. But yeah, that's 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 huge. I mean, yeah, I, I feel I feel the same way as the, the students. Say, you know, I I wouldn't I didn't know anything about you know all the prep work that goes into just just teaching a, a course. It's 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 really crazy, and it makes you really appreciate you know your teachers more that you know that they do really so much for the students. And just on a, maybe on a side note, just so how is you know with the new situation of COVID nineteen and online classes classes canceling. How has that affected your um, your instruction or, uh, you know, what have you changed or what have you done to kind of maximize this time? So typically this is what we have to do. And it was a transition that we had to make overnight. And so that made things a little bit more difficult because we never had an online system in place. When I was doing my undergrad back in Australia, uh, and this is a long time ago, I mean, I'm talking about the year 2008, 2009, I, I I completed my, my, my bachelor degree in 2010 and we had to do this one course mandatory as part of our degree to finish online. The, the entire course was done online. So I had some exposure to it and I had some idea where you have absolutely no physical contact with the, with the professor and we were, uh, you know, everything was disseminated online. All the lectures were, were uploaded online. All the worksheets, all the supplementary material, everything was available online. And so I had some idea of what to do but nevertheless, I had no idea how to do it because, um, for example, um, this week was our final exam week and then we had a couple of other exams that were remaining in the semester. So I had to use Blackboard Learning to prepare those exams. I had absolutely zero experience on how to do that. And so um, I figured it out myself. It was, wasn't that hard. Just Googled a few things. I had a few um, faculty members who gave me some advice, but Obviously, they didn't guide me through the entire system, but they told me where to look for it. So I, I went in there, figured it out myself, posted the exam online. Other than that, as far as lectures go, we're doing Zoom classes. So I have my office hours on Zoom. I have my lectures on uh, on Zoom. But other than that, what I, what I did is um, I do voiceover lectures on my PowerPoint presentation. So I would just you know make a PowerPoint, uh, do a voiceover lecture on each slide. And then upload that on um, on CourseWeb or the Blackboard Learning System that we have at our university. I think the biggest problem that we faced with the COVID-19 situation was labs, because obviously you cannot do anything online mm -hmm. as far as labs go. So the good thing was that we only had one activity remaining this semester, which was identification of an unknown sample. Basically, it had a bacteria in there, so the students had to perform different biochemical tests to deduce what the bacteria is. And so we had uh, the entire semester that we have done so far, starting all the way from January to March, we were teaching them different exercises, different experiments, different tools and techniques. And this exercise, this final exercise, was basically the culmination of everything that they have learned in the semester. So the good news was that whatever we had to teach them as far as skills go, as far as techniques go, we had already done that in January, February, and beginning of March. So we had to change that a little bit. We had to obviously adapt to what the new situation was and what it was dictating. So I had those students sub su submit a clinical report instead of actually doing the identification of the unknown. So the clinical report would be, you know, following a pathway showing how you reached, you know, the, the final conclusion of what the patient is suffering from. Now, these are nursing microbiology students. So these are all nursing students that I'm talking about. And so they had to submit that clinical report and tell us, report to us 
what is the bacteria and what is the infection that the person is uh, supposedly suffering from. And uh, so that was one change that we had to make over the semester. Uh, as far as lectures go, with lectures, you probably will agree with this and, and even the listeners uh, will agree to this. A lot of times students will miss classes. A lot of times students will miss the lectures. And so they would, you know, obviously access the lecture online or at least the PowerPoint online and um, have access to that material. So it's no big deal as far as lectures go. Uh, it's easy to adapt to that system. There's so many different apps that are available. The two very popular apps that we were using uh, actually, three very popular apps that we were using at our school is one is, of, co of course, Zoom. The second one is Panapto. And the third one is basically the Blackboard Ultra system or Ultra Collaborate. So in both of in all these three softwares, you have, you know, the, the most important feature is the screen sharing feature. And so I would screen share. And so it's been a little bit difficult in some ways. In other ways, I believe it was uh, more easier to adapt. People who are typically teaching lecture material or are teaching any type of pedagogy that requires only verbal lecture, it was easier for them to adapt to this online system. As far as biologists go, uh, chemists go, physicists, you know, physics lecturers go, you know, they are obviously having a very hard time as far as the practical component goes, as far as the lab component of the, the whole thing goes. I see. That, yeah, that's a nice, uh, you know, insider uh, information to how, you know, our, our professors and teachers are working to really give us the education that we kind of, we paid for, you know, in college, you know, for at this time. It's And it, it is really crazy just the, the you guys learning overnight that you have to change to this and it's just, it's unprecedented, you know. But, um, you know, we've talked a lot about your profession. So now we want to talk about the why behind it. So how did you know that this profession was right for you? So in other words, what drove you to become what you are today? And like, how did you discover that you, this is what you wanted to do? Well, trust me, this is not applicable to everyone. Uh, not a lot of people will obviously agree to what I'm saying, because there are certain people who have long-term plans and long-term goals in their life. You know, they probably have some diary somewhere where they have a five-year plan and a 10-year plan and a 15-year plan, um, I, I most certainly disagree with that kind of a system in place because you just never know what life will send your way. And you have to be really ready and you should be absolutely ready to accept whatever life sends your way. When I was growing up um, and I was uh, born in Abu Dhabi, United Arab Emirates, um, and I was raised there as well, until, up until the age of 18, 19. My uh, father, obviously, you know, uh, I, I wanted to do medicine. I wanted to be a medical doctor. And that that's the kind of profession, you know, growing up in those type of countries and in those type of regions in the world, you know, there's there's not a lot of options that you have that you grow up with. You know, you're, you can either be a doctor or a lawyer or an engineer and that's it. You know, anything other than that, you know, it's obviously not a good profession. And so, and of course, you know, I'm talking about that early 2000s, uh, you know, era. So it's almost about a decade and a half ago. So what happened was I, um, I, went to, I went to Australia for my higher education and I went there with the intention of becoming a dentist. I did my undergrad uh, in biomedical science. And in the last year of my biomedical science degree, um, I uh, was asked by my student advisor, would you like to do uh, a one-year honors research, which will be part of your undergrad, uh, but it will add an extra year. So your undergrad will be four years long, but the honors year is going to be full-time research. So you have the grades for it. You've done really well. You have more than an 80% average on your um, courses. 
So uh, you, you will definitely get admission in this program. And I said, sure. I did my honors year after my undergrad, and I absolutely loved it. I fell in love with research. I, I had no clue what research was before I actually took my undergrad year. Of course, you hear about it from you know, different sources, and you hear about all these scientists. But what really attracted me about research was that Number one, you get to do something new every day. And that was something so hypnotizing for me. It was such a magnetic force for me uh, that, you know, it's not a tedious job. It's not something that you would do, you know, just go in, you know, day in, day out, do the same thing, crunching numbers, doing this, doing that. No, this is something that requires you to think off of your feet. It's something that requires you to think outside the box. And it requires you to be very creative on a daily basis. And the really uh, exhilarating thing about that was, you know, every time you get a good result, every time you do an experiment, every time you do a project and you successfully complete that project, that feeling of exhilaration that I felt was just really, um, it, 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 it basically overcame all the other emotions that I had. It superseded all of my other interests that I had as far as my, my career goes. And the, the other thing was that as far as research went, you know, and I want to add this for the Khudam, that there are so many verses. I know Dr. Abdus Salam, he's obviously one of the, the biggest, you know, as far as scientific research goes, he is, he is the, uh, you know, pinnacle of our, as far as our Jamaat personalities go. And uh, he once very beautifully stated, that there are 700 verses of the Holy Quran that implore us to uh, observe nature, that implore us to observe God's creation, that implore us to do research. And there are so many verses of the Holy Quran that you know I came across that do that 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 basically um, echo the same message. That why don't you uh, look at my creation? And, you know, uh, see how I created certain things, see how I created birds, see how I uh, created the sky without pillars. All of these things, you know, it really opened my mind, it opened my heart towards research. And I, and I got more and more indulged and more and more encouraged to do, to do research. And so I, the, the most difficult part was to speak to my parents about it now and then, you know, basically tell them that, hey, uh, mom and dad, Abu Ami, I, I've I've decided not to do dentistry, so I want to go into research. And I didn't know how to spin an angle on that conversation when I was going to talk to my parents about it. So I went to my, uh, I, I called my mom and I told her and I said, Mom, I've completed my honors year and the school has granted me a scholarship to do a PhD. And uh, my, mo my mom, uh, you know, she, she's actually, she has a very funny personality and she very jokingly asked me, are you still going to be called a doctor after you complete your PhD? And I said, sure, yeah. And she said, that's fine by me then. So uh, that's, uh, you know, th that was sort of a, a very encouraging sign for me. My parents supported my decision. And I think that's exactly what our parents need to do even now, that we need to support uh, the ideas and uh, the support, uh, you know, whatever passion that our children might have or, or our youth might have or may have. And this is one of the biggest things that I feel um, is missing. This element is missing um, in some of the, the examples that I've come across. I, I'm, I'm going to give you a very quick example here, uh, Hassan. I had a student last semester. Uh, she came to my, uh, my office 
and uh, she said that I'll be um, I'm going to be taking foundations of biology in the spring semester with you. And I said, sure, why don't you have a seat and let's talk about it. And she sat down and as soon as she was sitting and I asked her, I said, listen, um, what major are you doing? Before, she, before I asked her that question, she said, I hate biology and that's why I'm so afraid of taking this course. And I said, okay, so what's your major? And she says, my major is biology. And I, and I looked at her and I was so confused. I'm like, okay, so it, it, this doesn't add up. You, you hate biology and your major is biology? I, what, what's going on here? Well, where, where's the disconnect? And then she told me something that really broke my heart. And she says, uh, well, um, my parents are forcing me to become a dentist. And that's why I have to take biology as a major. And I said, okay, so what is your passion? And she said, well, I want to be a chemical engineer. But my parents says that, say that, that that's not a good profession for women. And so she shouldn't be doing that. Now, I know that we are having an MKA discussion here, but again, it is relevant. Uh, it can be applicable to, to any gender. It's, it's, it's not gender specific. But um, these are the type of examples. This is only one example that I'm giving you. There are so many other examples like that that I come across. And I feel bad for that student because at the end of the day, you have to understand something. Passion pays. If you are passionate about something, no matter how difficult that field is, no matter how poorly um, people look at that field or people are interested in that field, if you are passionate about that field and if you know that you can make a difference, then there's absolutely no harm in going in that field and becoming successful. And so I completed my PhD. I um, you know, came to um, you know, the United States. Um, of course, when I came here, I wanted to be in research, and that's exactly what I did. I took up my first position with Children's Hospital of Pittsburgh. Maybe a lot of you know uh, the person that I was working with, Dr. Sohail Hussein. He is the, um, the chairman of the Ahmadiyya Association of Muslim Scientists USA. And I had the pleasure, absolute pleasure, of working with that, with that person, uh, with that man for two years. And his uh, lab focused on uh, pancreatitis. Uh, and then, obviously, he uh, made the decision to move to, um, to more greener pastures. He's actually now working as a full-time professor at Stanford University. And I uh, decided to move to another lab at the Hillman Cancer Center. At Hillman Cancer Center, uh, which is still part of the University of Pittsburgh, uh, network. Um, I was working or, or researching on pancreatitis, sorry, on pancreatic cancer and ovarian cancer. So these were the two cancers that I was primarily working on. And then a year later, I was presented with another opportunity. Um, I've always wanted to be, you know, an assistant professor. I mean, that's typically where, you know, um, a PhD, you know, obviously tries to work. And uh, that, that is basically the, the highest standard that you can achieve as far as a PhD goes. I'm, I'm strictly speaking about academics. Now, I was looking for an assistant professor position for the longest time. Couldn't find anything. Uh, but then this, you know, opportunity presented to me before I, I talk about that. I want to point out there was not a single day, probably in 2018 or 2019, that I did not end up writing a letter to Azur. This is not um, something that I'm saying lightly. I used to write a letter to Azur, and I mean, I, I don't typically do that anymore. I probably write a letter to Azur once a week or twice a week, just depends on, you know, how much time I have and um, depends on how less lazy I'm feeling that week. Um, but I used to send a letter to Azur almost every single day. And without those prayers, it was impossible because 
Um, I have to to remind the listeners here, whenever you're applying for positions like that, you know, the challenges that we face, uh, the, the biggest challenge that you will face is an internal candidate. If there is an internal candidate for that position, the chances that you will land that position, you will land that job, um, are pretty much very low to nil. So, of course, without prayer, without perseverance, you cannot achieve these things. Now, what happened was when I applied for this position in 2018, I got rejected for the job. They called me in for an interview. I, I delivered a lecture that they wanted me to deliver. I did all those things, jumped all the hoops, you know, had all my I's dotted, my T's crossed. But nonetheless, it, it didn't work out and I had to, uh, you know, move away from that, that position. And it was, it was very heartbreaking for me. But, um, you know, thanks to the prayers that we received from, from Hazur uh, and, you know, the fact that my wife actually encouraged me to reapply for that position. I don't know why I did that. I was, you know, I, I half-heartedly applied for the same position again. But then, you know, I thought to myself that, you know, all the letters that I have received from Hazur, you know, you know, praying for me that may Allah Ta'ala grant you this, this, this position, you know, they, they cannot go wasted. They never go wasted. And at some point, they do get accepted. And so I reapplied for that position. And can you imagine this, Hassan, that I interviewed with the same panel, with the same people, and this time I was even competing against internal two internal candidates, and I still ended up getting that position. Wow. So this, this, cannot, this cannot happen without prayers. You know, there's, of course, you know, people who belong to the worldly, the, the world, the realm of world, and have absolutely no connection with the spiritual realm, they will obviously have a very difficult time understanding this. But without prayers and without that strong conviction that you get from prayers, you cannot achieve these things. You know, you, and, and at times, I believe me, at times I felt that, you know, this, this thing will break me. It will either make me or it will break me because you, you, you start getting those feelings. Because remember, I don't have a PhD in America. My PhD is from, from Australia. That was my biggest challenge. You know, a lot of the, the schools that, you know, they're looking for talent that is obviously local. Um, and, you know, they, they always go for, you know, people who, who understand the American education system. Um, a lot of times I was even told uh, by certain individuals that, oh, uh, because you don't have a master's in education, there's no way anyone's going to give you a teaching position in the United States. So I, I was hearing all of these uh, negative things, and obviously it, it does put a dent in your effort, and it, 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 puts a, it definitely puts a dent in your, uh, in your conviction and you know, in your uh, confidence. But at the end of the day, if you have that connection with, and of course, you know, it has to be a right balance between both the things. You don't expect that just by writing a letter to Hazur or, you know, just because, you know, you're working really hard, you're going to get rewarded by that. No, the real thing is that you have to be pray. You, you have to pray yourself too. You know, you have to have that minimum level, that minimum threshold of spirituality to, to be able to enjoy or, or reap the benefits of Hazur's prayers. If you are not praying yourself and you're expecting Hazur to pray for you, it's not going to work. It doesn't work that way. Islam, you know, yes, of course, in this world, you know, his prayers may intercede for you, but there's a likely chance that they will get rejected by Allah Almighty. Allah. Thank you. That's definitely, you know, many, many students, probably the listeners really would echo the same sentiments of just trying to, when they're trying to, you know, regardless of what they want to go into, a lot of people kind of doubt them and tell them, oh, because of this thing, you'll never be able to, you know, achieve at this level. But, you know, you explain, and one thing that really struck was that passion pays is that, 
if you're passionate enough for something and you you work hard at it but you also do the other thing which is keep up with your spirituality you know keep up with your relationship with huzur then that's where you can really become successful when you when you kind of do both together you can't just do one or the other you need to do both of them. i think that's really inspirational i think a lot of people especially myself as well we can relate to kind of what you've you know been going through and i think it's really nice that you kind of you know told us your story and um that was really helpful so i think just just moving on to our our final question so i know that we we talked about you know ahmadiyya khilafat islam how that's played a role in you becoming you know what you are today how in other ways have you been able to serve the jamaat that maybe aren't maybe directly related to prof- profession or they are r- related to your profession you know i know you've been working with um uh, masq and probably the muslim uh, scientists association as well so um if you could uh, you know just talk a little bit about that and just um tell us a few more things jazakallah well ahmadiyya muslim community uh, worldwide um and everyone knows this you know whether you're an ahmadi or you're not an ahmadi you know the world has become such a global village these days that you know things don't remain hidden for a long time and the reality of our jamaat is that our jamaat is perhaps the most organized jamaat or the most organized community um you know at least as far as the muslim world goes and that is obviously because of you know the system of caliphate or the system of khilafat that we have it's a life support system for us without the prayers of huzur without the system of caliphate our jamaat our community will basically fall apart like a house of cards that is the bottom line reality of things now how does that play a role in our life you know if you look at the most grassroots level you know when i was little um and i'm i'm going to give you a, a a flip side of things before i go into what the question was the flip side of thing is that when i was little you know i'm talking about when i turned atfal at the age of 7 8 9 10 i used to participate in Uh, a lot of uh you know jamaat activities and that included you know giving speeches and doing tilawat and doing you know reading poems and you know that element of my life and i think about that a lot it took away the stage fright that i had i i don't think that i've ever had stage fright i think it's it's really easy for me to get onto a stage and just start talking and i think one reason for that is that the jamaat platform that was provided to me at a very young age you know helped me get over that fear of uh, you know uh, you know getting up on the stage and and talking in front of people and i think that's what really helped me become you know sort of like a like a presenter because as as a phd student you have to do a lot of things you have to do presentations on a weekly basis you have to talk in front of your colleagues you have to do presentation at conferences uh during my phd years i had the opportunity to even be a lecturer for a few semesters for undergrad students so that you know uh, was something that really helped me you know build from a very uh, from a very young age as far as jamaat goes now um yes i am involved in masq and and absolutely i mean when i went to australia i did my phd and everything uh that really helps you improve as far as your writing skills go and i i i never thought that i had that kind of a writer in me um as as you know and then as soon as i started writing uh for for masq i realized that hey you know i can i can do this well um and um, of course you have a lot of support that comes with MSQ there's so many editors there's a team in place that helps you improve on your writing and you know they give you really really good pointers and so over time you you tend to improve those things um so 
the way that I see your question, Hassan, is um, you know it's a it's a two way street. Uh, when I was little, you know, the Jamaat, whatever platform was provided to me, helped me become what I am today. And at the same time, whatever I have learned from the world and from a worldly perspective. I've been able to apply that on the Jamaat as well because obviously with my PhD I was publishing a lot of papers, a lot of conference papers. I actually authored uh, about four first author papers with my PhD. So uh, that really helped me improve on my writing skills, and it also helped me accept a lot of different ideas. And you know, this is this is really important. This is the next thing that I wanted to come to. That you know, free exchange of ideas. You know, and and that's what research is about. You know, it's it's actually a free exchange of ideas, and this is basically a hallmark of a civil society. You know, so you when you are you know exchanging ideas with someone, hey, you know what, you can be wrong, and that is something you know which the Jamaat has taught me from a very young age. That if if you are you know, l- let me give you a very 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 simple example, something that a lot of our Khudam can basically relate to is, for example, the the death of Jesus Christ. Now, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community believes. That Jesus, uh, did not die on the cross, but that he migrated to Kashmir, and that's basically where he spent the rest of his days and passed away in that in that part of the world. Now, obviously, this is an idea which was brought uh, by Hazrat Masih, or at least you know it wasn't brought by by him, but he obviously you know uh, he polished this idea. He explained what the Quran was saying, what the Quran was telling us. He wrote commentaries upon commentaries. To make us understand that, and there are so many conversion stories that we hear all the time from a very young age. You know that oh, uh, you know there's a bath that took place somewhere. There's a there's a conversion that took place somewhere. Just in just in recent times, I believe it was last month where uh, Imam Abdullah Dibasab shared uh, a conversion in Philadelphia Jamaat. So these things are happening on a very uh, routine basis in our Jamaat. And so what is that? What exactly is that? It is a conversion. It is a free exchange of civil, you know, of, of civil thought, and that's what it is. And once you have that kind of free exchange of ideas, obviously, you know, that breeds uh, tolerance. It breeds understanding. It breeds pluralism in our society. And so, this was an idea which I borrowed from a very young age from the Jamaat, and I applied it to the world. And hey, you know what? Science is all about that. It's free exchange of ideas. A scientist will get up somewhere in some part of the world, maybe in China, and say, "Hey, I made this discovery, which proves that another discovery that was made in America is false." Or the other way around, a, a scientist in America will get up and say, "Hey, I made this certain discovery, which proves the other person was wrong," or it proves that the other person was right, and it it basically supports that theory. So the important thing here is to realize that you know you can mirror uh, the skills and and the the ideas and uh, everything that you learn from the world. Of course, picking up all the positive things and apply it to your religion as well. Now the other thing is obviously I um, am serving in the capacity of uh, general secretary at my local jamaat. I'm also serving at the national level um, as assistant to the additional secretary of finance, Dr. Nasser Ahmed. So um, and that obviously requires you to be organized, and so those organizational skills, you know, a lot of people, you know, when they they talk to me, they they feel like, you know, and they, this is this is the impression that they get that you know you you're you're a lot more organized 
given your age, then we would usually expect from people. And I tell them that this is what I learned from my community. They, they get a little bit, you know, taken aback when I say that to them. They get a little startled. They're like, oh, it's a Muslim community. So, you know, how is it so organized? And so they, they do get a little bit startled by that. But at the end of the day, that is the truth. And, you know, when you when you present the truth to the world, there's no way that they will reject it. In one way or another, they will accept the, what, you're, what you're telling them. So I feel like, you know, it's, it's both ways. Uh, whatever, I, whatever good I absorbed, I learned, um, I mimicked from, you know, the elders of my Jamaat, uh, I was able to apply that, you know, obviously, for example, respect. You know, this, this is something that we learned from a very young age that, you know, there's a hadith by Prophet Muhammad that, you know, uh, respect an individual even if you've learned a word a single word from that person, you know, so, you know, keeping that in mind, when I, I remember when I traveled to Australia, it was a really funny story. I walked into my professor's room. This was the first time I met him and I walked into his room and I said, hi, professor, how are you? And he, he looked at me and he says, it's Peter. And I, I looked at him. I was like, excuse me. And he says, it's Peter. My name is Peter. You don't have to call me professor or doctor or anything like that. And um, in fact, I was calling him sir. So he, he stopped me from from calling all those terms and he says, just call me by my first name and that should be fine. And I was really surprised. I was like, wow. And that was that was the first sort of like a, like a culture shock that I got when I was in Australia. And I thought to myself, wow, okay. So I can, I can call my professors and, and teachers by name? That's really disrespectful. So, uh, you know, those are the type of things that you really have to get used to over time. And so that is something that I learned from my religion. My religion teaches me to respect someone of that profession, you know, someone who's from the teaching profession, you have to respect them. And not just from the teaching profession, but from any profession, from any walk of life. You know, you have to show, you have to show that courtesy, you have to extend that respect to everyone. And so I was able to apply that, uh, you know, um, in my worldly situations as well. Um, similarly, you know, you have things that you learn from, uh, you know, for example, my Zoom calls that I've done with my Jamaat. And this is, this is a very recent example I'm giving you because I was already using Zoom uh, for my lectures and with my students. So I was able to organize an, an, a national meeting on Zoom. And, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Nasser, who's the National Additional Secretary of Finance, he was really happy about that. He said, this is a great idea. I don't know why we didn't think of this before of doing Zoom calls with our people and so we can see them and we can, you know, show our faces to them and whatnot. Um, and so, so you know, it, it, it just, it's a two-way street. It goes both ways, Jazakallah. Yeah, I think that's a really, really important point that the stuff that we learn from, from Jamaat and Jamaat activity from the Quran, it's not just for our spirituality, but it's from it's coming from our Creator who knows best about also our, our physical, our you know, our worldly lives as well. So I think that's just such an important point to keep in mind. So with that, um, would you have uh, any other comments or anything you want to add just as we, in closing? My final comments would be about prayer. Uh, Hazur has uh, specifically instructed us to pray a lot during this time. And if you listen to Hazur's uh, Friday sermons, uh, at least for the last couple of weeks, that's exactly what he has been alluding to. So I think we need to obviously take care of that. The other important thing as far as the COVID-19 situation goes, to follow the guidelines that come from our governments, from our local governments. So um, I hope that everyone is staying safe and uh, staying at home during this difficult time. And, um, you know, keep washing those hands and uh, just make sure that you're not, uh, you know, exposing yourself unnecessarily to a situation where you're not only endangering yourself, but you're endangering your loved ones who are staying with you at home. Thank you.
Zakumla. So thank you, um, everyone, for listening. Zakumla Asunul Jaza. That was another episode of the MKHE podcast. If you have any comments or questions, or you'd like to suggest our next guest. You can write to us at students at mkusa.org or if you need any type of educational assistance or anything, especially with these new times and switching to online classes, maybe you want to talk to someone who's uh, in, in your goal profession for advice, we can uh, link you up with someone as well. So once again, that's students at mkusa.org. Zakumla for listening and we'll inshallah see you on the next episode. Assalamu alaikum.